Unless you know the story of the whole Bible, these stories often seem to make little sense. The Bible is God's redemptive story. God is buying sinful people back with the blood of Jesus Christ, and he's doing this by his grace alone. Welcome to The Fox Den with Terry Fox. Greetings, everyone. Well, it's been a couple weeks since I recorded my last episode. The last time this happened, I had COVID. Well, the good news is this time I didn't have COVID, but I was super busy with work-related issues. And then my daughter had an out-of-state volleyball tournament. So that took a lot of our time, and I just was unable to record any episodes. So once again, I'm back, and hopefully I'll be able to get back on a more consistent schedule. So with that out of the way, let's begin. Do you ever find the Bible hard to understand, especially the Old Testament? Perhaps you find some stories interesting, like David and Goliath or Noah's Ark. You might even find some of them inspiring. But what are all those prophecies about? And what's up with all those offerings in Leviticus? Unless you know the story of the whole Bible, these stories often seem to make little sense. The Bible can be difficult to understand. I mean, you might be able to understand the narrative, you might be able to understand the story, but oftentimes they seem to be just stories, and you may not see the significance of those stories and how they play out in the whole Bible story. But then there's just some places that are very difficult to understand. Now, I think there's several reasons why the Bible can be hard to understand. And the first is the Bible was never organized to be read from front to back. It's really organized by genres. So first of all, you have the Old Testament and the New Testament. And then in the Old Testament, you have the historic books, Genesis to Esther. And then the next five books are what we call wisdom literature. And then from Isaiah to Malachi, those are the prophets. So you can see right there that you don't read from front to to back with the Old Testament, because once you hit Job, you're no longer working within the historic timeline of the Bible. Same thing with the Psalms. Those are really just songs, and they're written by several different guys, like David, Asaph. And then in the New Testament, the first four books are historic, and they're really four different accounts of Jesus Christ. Then you have Acts, which is history. It really begins with the ascension of Christ, and it shows the development of the church throughout Asia Minor. And then you have Romans to Jude. Those are letters written by Paul, Peter, John, and some others. And these are instructional letters. They define theology. They define what the church believes about certain things, who God is, who Jesus is, the sinfulness of mankind, how man is saved. But it also shares how we are to live as Christians. And then finally, you have the book of Revelation. And that shows future events of what is to come. Now, Revelation uses figurative language. But that book was written to encourage Christians in the first century. So even though many Christians in the United States find it a scary book, it was really a book to encourage Christians. And the reason why is because, in the end, God wins. So first, one of the reasons why you may have a hard time understanding the Bible is because you try to read it from front to back and you don't see the different genres. 
But the second reason why the Bible may be hard to understand is that it was written over 2,000 years ago over the span of about 1,500 years. It was written by many different men, and it was written to a completely different group of people. It was written in a different land, a different time, a different culture. So when we try to understand it from a Western perspective, sometimes it's difficult for us to understand. When I was in seminary, we were going over 1 John, and I found it very frustrating to read because John would cover some stuff, and then he'd kind of go back to the beginning, and he'd cover some stuff, and he'd kind of go back. So it's almost this circular motion. And it was frustrating to me, because my Western mind thinks in a linear fashion. But one of my fellow students in that class was from Ethiopia, and he told me it made complete sense to him. Part of his culture is to kind of do this circular argumentation, if you will. The third reason why you might find the Bible hard to understand is that it was written in two different languages. The Old Testament was written primarily in Hebrew, with some Aramaic, and the New Testament was written in Greek. Now, it's hard enough to translate from Greek and Hebrew to English, but there's an added complication here. Languages are dynamic. They change over time, and these languages no longer exist. I mean, sure, there's Greek and Hebrew today, but not biblical Greek and Hebrew. It's kind of like trying to read Old English. So when you take a language that's dead, if you will, that's no longer being used, it's difficult to translate from that language into present-day English or any other language. Fourth, you may be reading the Bible as if it's a book of morality or advice for good living, but that's not the purpose of the Bible. The Bible is God's redemptive story. God is buying sinful people back with the blood of Jesus Christ, and he's doing this by his grace alone. So the Bible is a book of redemption, not a book of morality or a book for good living. And finally, you may have a hard time understanding the Bible because you may not know the whole Bible story and how the different pieces fit together. The stories of the Bible may seem like just a collection of stories with no real connected relationship, but these stories are related, and there's a common link throughout all the books of the Bible. So when you read a story in the Bible, you don't know where it fits or how it connects with the whole. So it's super helpful to know the whole story of the Bible so that when you read a book of the Bible, you know where it fits. And you kind of know where it fits in the redemptive story. Now, there's two more important things you need to know before reading the Bible. And the first is the purpose of the Bible is to reveal God and his plan to rescue sinners in Jesus Christ. And then second, the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation is primarily about Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, Jesus himself says that in John chapter 5, verse 39, and verse 46. So even though Jesus wasn't born till several hundred years after the Old Testament events, the whole Bible is really about Jesus Christ. Now, you can listen to episodes 8 and 43 to get a clear picture of what I mean. So now that I've covered why you may be having a hard time understanding the Bible... I really want to address my last point that I made, and I want to help you see the whole story of the Bible. Now, I've pretty much already touched on this to some degree. The Bible reveals God and his plan to rescue sinners in Jesus Christ. That's really the whole Bible. But what I want to do over the next several weeks is help you to see the flow of the Bible in a little more detailed way. 
I'm going to begin with Genesis, and I'm going to work through the Bible so that you can see the story unfold. Now, I'm going to hit high points, but I'm probably not going to hit every high point. There's a lot of content in the Bible, so I'm going to do my best to help you see the flow of the Bible, but obviously I'm going to miss some things, and I'm, I'm going to keep some things out, perhaps not even intentionally, but just because there's so much there, it's hard to hit everything that's important. Now, let me give you some introductory information before we begin. Moses wrote Genesis and the next four books. These five books are known as the Pentateuch. And Moses likely wrote these books during the wilderness wanderings, which we will cover in Exodus to Deuteronomy. And in the Pentateuch, God does several things. Through Moses, he gave the people of Israel their background, their identity. He's showing them where they came from. And he also gave his people the law to live by when they enter into the promised land. So now let's begin with the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 1 through chapter 11 really covers introductory matters. Genesis 1, we see that God created. Now, the first thing that we see is that God existed before creation. And then with his voice, God created all things. And after God created, he said that all he created was very good. And that means that there's no sin. So in the first chapter, Moses established the power of God and the goodness of his creation. And then in Genesis 2, we see that God institutes rest. And all that means is that God stopped working on the seventh day. And so he institutes the Sabbath, which again, we're going to see when we cover Exodus to Deuteronomy. But also in Genesis chapter 2, he focuses on the creation of man, which was day 6. And this sets up the problem. Because in Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 to 17, God issues a command. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And then we see in Genesis chapter 3, the fall of mankind. In verse 6, Adam ate the forbidden fruit. He violated God's command in Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. And again, this is the fall of mankind. Because Adam did that, we are all guilty of violating God's law. He was our representative in the Garden of Eden. Now, we all sin by our own sinful conduct, but our sin nature we receive from Adam. But here's the good news. God planned to rescue his people in Christ, and we see that in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And this is known as the Proto-Evangelion, the first mention of the gospel. You see, in that verse, God promises to defeat Satan. Now, that's actually kind of an important point. Your salvation is not based on your conduct. Your salvation is based on the promise of God. God promised he was going to defeat Satan. And really what we see throughout the whole Bible is God defeating Satan. And there in the book of Revelation, we see the completion of the promise found in Genesis 3.15. And then we move to Genesis chapter 4, and there we have Cain who is Eve's firstborn son, he kills his brother Abel. And this reveals the effects of sin. Now, it seems that Eve thought Cain was actually the rescuer in Genesis 3.15, but he obviously was not. So then we see the birth of Seth. And it's through Seth that Christ will come several thousand years later. And then Genesis 5 gives us a genealogy from Adam to Noah. And then Genesis chapter 6 to Genesis 9, God floods the earth. And Noah and his family is rescued in the ark, or the large boat. Now, there's a reason why God flooded the earth. And we see that in Genesis 6, 5. 
the wickedness of man had reached its culmination. And God decided that he was going to destroy all mankind except for Noah and his family. Now, there's a reason for this. There's a reason why he rescued a family, even though he decided to destroy all mankind. Now, you might think that he rescued Noah because Noah was a super great guy. But Noah was just as sinful as you and me. No, there's another reason for this. You see, God made a promise in Genesis 3.15. The seed of Eve is going to defeat Satan. So if God destroyed all mankind with the flood, meaning he destroyed Noah and his family as well, then God couldn't keep his promise. So God had to rescue somebody in order for humanity to continue, in order for that seed to come and defeat Satan. Now, the Bible does say that Noah was a righteous and blameless man, but he wasn't sinless. And the proof of that is he died. Remember, the penalty of eating the forbidden fruit was death. And we're all related to Adam, so we all die. But he was a righteous and blameless man because he believed God. And building that large boat was proof of his faith. So Noah built a large boat and he gathered animals to repopulate the earth after the waters receded. So God flooded the earth and killed all mankind except for Noah and his family. And then God said that he would not flood the earth again because this won't do any good. He says that in Genesis 8.21. And the point that he's getting there is that we are related to Adam. We all have a sin nature. In Genesis 8.21, it says that man is sinful from his youth. Do you ever notice how infants can get mad when they don't get their way? Why do they do that? The Bible is very clear. They do that because they're sinful. In fact, in Psalm 51, verse 5, David says, In sin my mother conceived me. And he's not saying that he was illegitimate. What he was saying is even at conception he was sinful. So if God's going to wipe out mankind again with a flood, it's not going to do any good. Man is corrupt. You see, people are guilty in Adam and they receive their sin nature from him. Paul tells us this in Romans 5, verse 12. Now, another interesting point here is that God establishes a covenant sign, a rainbow. So when you see a rainbow, that is evidence that God is not going to flood the earth again. But do you know who the rainbow is put there for? God. He says that when he puts the rainbow there, he will remember his word. Isn't that interesting? That God has a covenant sign, the rainbow, And it's not really there for us. It's to remind him. Is it because God has a bad memory? No, that's just his covenant sign. But we get to benefit from that. We see that and we know he's not going to flood the earth again with water. So then we move to Genesis chapter 10. And that's the descendants from Noah to Shem. Now keep in mind what Moses is doing is he is going through these first 11 chapters. He's telling the Israel people where they came from. So now he's talking about the line in which they're coming. They're descendants of Noah and Shem. And then in chapter 11, we have the Tower of Babel, and this is where God confused the language of the people in order to spread them throughout the earth because of their rebellion to do so. And then we also see the descendants from Shem to Abram, who is also Abraham. God changes his name later. And then starting in chapter 12 to chapter 50, we have what we call the patriarchs. And there are four of these, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. So just keep in mind, Genesis chapter 12 to Genesis chapter 50 is really the story of these four guys. 
So we see Abraham from Genesis chapter 12 to Genesis chapter 25. And God called Abraham to leave his home and go to the land of Canaan. Now, Abraham's home was really in present-day Iraq over by the Persian Gulf. And he called him to the land of Canaan, which is present-day Israel. Now, as a little side note, the Israel today is not the Israel of the Old Testament. I mean, it's the same plot of land, but it's not necessarily the same people. In other words, Israel ceased to exist during the Old Testament and was reestablished in 1947 or 1948. So there's over 2,000 years where Israel didn't exist. So God calls Abraham to leave his home and go to the land of Canaan. And take a look in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, what God promises to Abraham. He promises a land, a people, and a blessing. Now it's important to remember here that God doesn't simply mean a geographical land and biological descendants. So it's true that they had an earthly land and there were biological descendants. So though this promise is earthly, it largely refers to the spiritual. And Paul talks about that in Romans chapter 9, verses 6 through 8. You see, those of us who are Gentiles or non-Jews, those of us who are not related biologically to Abraham, yet are believers in Christ, we are the children of Abraham because we're the children of the promise. We are the people God meant when he promised Abraham descendants. Now, there's something else to point out. God made a covenant with Abraham, and his covenant is one way. It's based on no conditions on Abraham's part. God said he will. He didn't say he will if Abraham will. I hope you're catching my point. For example, in Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 and following, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. There's no condition in there. Not, I will make you a great nation if. I will bless you if. There's no conditions. It's what we call a unilateral covenant. And this is important when we look at salvation. God doesn't save based on conditions. He saves by his grace alone. There's no conditions to your salvation. I mean, certainly you're to believe, but even that God works in you. You believe because the Holy Spirit worked faith in you. And then also God declared him righteous apart from obedience or good works. You see, Abraham was a sinner just like you and me. Yet we see in Genesis chapter 15 verses 1 through 6 that God makes a promise. Abraham believed the promise and God counted his faith as righteousness. In fact, in Genesis chapter 17, God institutes the covenant sign of circumcision. And the point that Paul makes in Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, is that Abraham received the sign of circumcision after his faith was counted as righteousness. In other words, he wasn't counted righteous because he was circumcised. And this is where a lot of the Pharisees got confused. So we've already seen that God has promised Abraham descendants, but Abraham had no sons, and he was old, and his wife was barren, and God promised him a son. And after waiting about 25 years, Sarah gives birth to Isaac. So then we see the story of Isaac from Genesis 21 to Genesis 35. He is the son that God promised to Abraham through his wife, Sarah. And then several years later, God tested Abraham to prove that he had faith. And we see this in Genesis 22. 
he commanded Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, and God stopped him just before he plunged the knife into Isaac. God never intended Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. He commanded him to do this to prove that he had faith. And we know that he did because this is Genesis 22, but we saw that faith in Genesis 15, verses 1 through 6. So again, just before Abraham plunges the knife into his son, God stops him and he provides a ram for Abraham to sacrifice instead of Isaac. And certainly this ram is a picture of Christ, but this ram is not the true sacrifice. It's interesting because Abraham called that place the Lord will provide, not the Lord provided. And years later, when Moses is writing this, he said that the place is named the same, the Lord will provide. So that tells us that God had not yet provided the sacrifice, even though in that instance he provided the ram. Now you can listen to episode 43 where I discuss this story in full. And then years later, Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau. And really, we see the story of Jacob, who is one of the patriarchs, in Genesis chapter 25 to Genesis 49. Now, Esau was the older brother, and he had a birthright, but he sold that birthright to Jacob. And then later, Jacob and his mother deceived Isaac, and Isaac blessed Jacob. Now, here's the interesting thing. Jacob receiving the birthright was actually prophesied before these twins were born. We see that in Genesis chapter 25, verse 23. So, if it was prophesied that the older would serve the younger, is it simply because God could see the future and he could see that was what was going to happen? Or is there something else going on here? Well, you're not going to like the answer. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 9, verses 12 through 13, really what's going on. You see, Jacob received the birthright because God loved him and hated Esau, even before they were born. Now, you might think I'm making this up, but you can look at that passage for yourself. Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And Paul is actually quoting Malachi chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. So, Jesus is a descendant of Jacob. So, Isaac sends Jacob away, and he meets Rachel and wants to marry her. And her dad makes a deal with Jacob. He says, work for him for seven years, and he'll give him Rachel. So, he works for him for seven years, and the father gives Jacob Leah, the oldest daughter. Well, after Jacob realizes he was deceived by Rachel's father, he makes another deal with him so he can have Rachel. And through the two sisters and their two maids, Jacob has 12 sons. And through these sons come the 12 tribes of Israel. And then starting in Genesis 37 to the end of the book, we see the story of Joseph. So Joseph was the firstborn of Rachel, and Jacob loved Joseph more than the other children. We see that in Genesis 37, verse 3. And Joseph's brothers, they hated him. Joseph had a couple dreams where basically his brothers bowed down to him. Well, this made the brothers mad. They didn't like the idea that they would be bowing down to their younger brother, and a brother that they couldn't stand because the father loved him more than them. So basically, they decided they're going to kill him. But then they changed their mind and they decided to sell him. And Joseph was taken to Egypt where he became a slave. And then over time, Joseph rose to power in Egypt behind Pharaoh. And the land was hit with a famine. And his brothers came down to Egypt to get food because of the famine. And they didn't recognize Joseph, but he recognized them. And again, there's much more to the story, but eventually he reveals himself to his brothers and they bring the whole family down to Egypt, including Jacob. 
and Pharaoh lets them settle in the land of Goshen. And then sometime later, Jacob dies, and the brothers fear that Joseph would retaliate for what they did to him years earlier. However, Joseph knows that God directed all of this. You see, he tells them in Genesis chapter 50, verses 19 to 21, don't fear. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. You see, Joseph gets it. God directed his brothers to do that in order to save the house of Israel. Remember, God has to preserve Israel. God has to preserve the line of Christ. And that's what he was doing in the Joseph story. So we know that God is going to preserve the people, even when times get hard, because he made a promise in Genesis 3.15, Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 49, verse 10. And this brings us to the end of Genesis. Now, I want to make one more point here. Jesus is a descendant of Abraham, and his line goes through Isaac and Jacob, but he's not a descendant of Joseph. He comes from the tribe of Judah, one of the older brothers, and a son of Leah, not Rachel. As a matter of fact, we see that prophesied in Genesis chapter 49, verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. A scepter is a kingly instrument. It's a sign of rule or sovereignty. And we'll see this play out later on in the Old Testament. But do you see how God preserved the people of Israel, in particular Judah, in order to keep his promise in Genesis 3.15, Genesis 12, Genesis 15, and elsewhere. So Genesis gives the people of Israel an idea of who God is, his grace, and who they are, children of Abraham, children of the promise. That concludes this episode. If you have any questions, please email me at terry at thefoxdenjournal.com. If you enjoy The Fox Den, please leave a positive review and share this podcast with others. And if you haven't done so already, please subscribe. The Fox Den is a member of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Thanks for listening. And remember, faith comes by hearing.